Today's scripture reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 19 through 31. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other's disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But Thomas said to them, Unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put, your, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen, but yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his, his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Thank you for joining us today at River Oaks on this special day when we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. By the way, the folks you heard on the screen were a few of those who have been baptized uh, over the past year or so, and uh, grateful for their sharing a bit of their story of what God has done in their lives. And again, very grateful to have you with us today on Easter Sunday. At the door, you uh, probably got a bulletin that looks something like this, and on the edge of it, there's a tear-off strip entitled, Hey, I'm Here. We always appreciate it very much if you fill this out, whether you're someone who's here every single week or this is your very first day. On the strip, you can indicate if you've got interest in knowing about being baptized or some ministry of our church or a new member class. And if you have a prayer request, it really is our privilege to pray over these requests every week. So I'd encourage you to fill that out. You can drop it in the basket that will come around at the end of the service. If you're new to our church, one of the things that I think you'll discover uh, fairly uh, quickly in your attending here is that we have a key core value, and that is that we are Bible-centered. We believe that the entire Bible, the 66 books from Genesis to Revelation, the 39 books of the Old Testament and 27 of the New, have been inspired by God, preserved by God to teach us. Now, 
if you don't have a Bible, if you've never read the Bible and you'd like a, a reader-friendly version, we've got some free copies today of the New Testament at our Resource Center. Just feel free to grab one on your way out after the service. But if someone were to say to me, uh, it's fine that you have this value of being Bible-centered, I'm not sure I believe that. I'm not sure I believe that all Scripture is inspired by God, but I'm open, open to learning more, especially open to learning about who Jesus was, uh, what he can mean in a person's life. And if a person asks me, what is the part of the Bible I'd recommend they read first? If I could recommend only one book, it would be the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is unique amongst the Gospels in that it is built around seven specific miracles of Christ. And if you recall the last verse that Amanda read just a moment ago, John is talking about his purpose for having written the Gospel of John. He talks about all the signs that Jesus did, and he says, if they were all recorded, I suppose even the world couldn't contain all the books, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And if you've not yet come to place your faith in Jesus as your Lord, as your Savior, I'd give you a challenge to begin reading the Gospel of John. 21 chapters. You can read a chapter a day for 21 days or three a day for one week. And just say, God, if this is true, speak to me. Show me through what these Christians believe is your word. Now, the Gospel of John is not only unique for the emphasis on the seven miracles, but also because John in his Gospel gives us seven metaphorical statements of Jesus. That is, statements in which Jesus uses some metaphor, some figure of speech, to refer to who he is and what he does in the lives of people who place their trust in him. The fact that he introduces these metaphorical sayings with the words, I am, are highly significant. Because the name I am is the name that God gave for himself. In the Old Testament book of Exodus, Moses has been called by God to go back into Egypt and to lead the Israelite slaves out of their bondage there. Moses was reluctant to do this. And as he stood before a burning bush where God revealed himself to Moses, Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say, God has sent me. What shall I say is his name? Who shall I say sent me? And God said to Moses, I am that I am. Say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. All good Jews knew this story. They knew that the name I am, uh, rendered as Yahweh or Jehovah in our Old Testaments, it's typically rendered as simply the Lord in all caps. They knew this was the divine name. So in the verses you see on the screen from the Gospel of John, Jesus, when in conversation with the religious leaders, used that name, they picked up stones to, to stone him to death. Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. And this is why they tried to put him to death. 
Now, Jesus uses throughout the Gospel of John the words, I am, to refer to himself. This morning, we're going to look at these seven I am metaphorical statements of Jesus to see what they mean for us because Jesus is alive today. And he continues to do these things expressed in these titles in his people. The first of these seven statements is this. I am the bread of life. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. Here he's talking about the Israelites after Moses had led them out of Egypt. They complained for lack of food. Moses prays to God and God gives them manna. It's a flake-like, crust-like material that they picked up off the ground in the mornings. It was food. It sustained them. But Jesus said of himself, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Just as physical bread provided nourishment and life for the Israelites, he says, I'm the living bread come down from heaven. And if a person eats of this bread, he'll live forever. What did he mean? He said, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. What did he mean? Jesus was pointing to his role as the Lamb of God slain for the sins of the world. On the cross, he would give his flesh. He would give his physical body. It would be torn. It would be nailed to a cross. Because there, Jesus would take our place. There, he would fulfill his role as the Lamb of God. The last sacrifice. The final sacrifice. Where God, who knew no sin, would lay down his life to bear the judgment for our sin. On the sacrifice, Jesus took our place. So we might be forgiven before holy God and share his place in heaven. Jesus is the bread of life. Furthermore, Jesus says in his second, I am statement, I am the light of the world. I'm the light of the world, he says. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Light reveals things as they are. Light enables us to see reality. Is the light of the world, Jesus enables us to see spiritual realities that we might not otherwise see. These include the reality of sin in our lives. Jesus confronted even the most religious people of his day with their sin. He took them to the heart and tent of the law. For those who said, I don't commit adultery, Jesus said, whoever looks at a woman, the lust in his heart has committed adultery. To those who said, I don't commit murder, Jesus said, the one who hates his brother is a murderer. Even to the not-so-religious like Peter, they would see the goodness, the purity, the power of Christ, his miracles, and Peter would fall down and say, Lord, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. Jesus brings us light that shows our sin, that we fail to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. It's the light of the world. Jesus also reveals what God is like. You ever wondered what God is like? We have a very clear picture. Jesus said in the Gospel of John to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. 
Jesus reveals the Father as the light of the world. Furthermore, Jesus reveals the way to God. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. As the light of the world, Jesus enables to see spiritual truth. Thirdly, Jesus is the door of the sheep or the gate of the sheep. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, I'm the door of the sheep. And by this, he means I'm the doorway into the sheepfold. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. He will go in and out and find pasture. In biblical times, a, a sheep pen might have looked like the one you see on the screen. If a shepherd was traveling in the fields with his sheep, it wouldn't be permanent walls like this, but just rocks perhaps stacked up. But it was often common for the shepherd himself to sleep in the entryway to the sheep pen, the door, or the gate, thereby literally becoming the door of the sheep or the gateway of the sheep. This was, of course, to protect the sheep keep them from wandering out or being stolen in the night. If a, if a thief would jump over the wall to attempt to lead the sheep out, well, the shepherd would be awakened. Jesus is not only the entryway into the sheep pen, but the one who guards his sheep. The words about thieves and robbers would seem to be a, a, a veiled statement about the religious leaders of his day who asserted that their spiritual practices, their religious practices, and their, their rituals were the way to God. Jesus taught, though, that it wasn't your religious activity that's a way to God, but he himself, the person of Jesus himself, was the way to God. In the words of author Jack Deere, the essence of legalism is the religious activity rather than trusting in God. It is putting our confidence in a practice rather than a person, and without fail, this will lead us to love the practice more than the person. That person is Jesus, the doorway, the gate into the sheepfold. In his fourth I am statement, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life, I lay down my life for the sheep. Not only is he the way into the sheepfold, he watches over his sheep. Sheep can be fairly cute animals sometimes, like the picture on the screen. They can also be not so cute, but one thing is for sure about sheep, they are not intelligent animals. They tend to be very, very dumb. These pictures were taken by Tim Laniac, the dean of, a former dean of Gordon-Conwell in Charlotte, who spent a year on sabbatical in the Middle East living among shepherds and taking these pictures. He shared a story of uh, hundreds of sheep going off the end of a cliff because, Dr. Laniac writes, it's a curious behavior of sheep that once one sheep picks up a trail... The rest simply follow the tail in front of them without regard to the destination. And a good shepherd not only leads the sheep, but cares for the flock. Jesus, the good shepherd, not only leads his sheep, he laid down his life for us. He became 
the great substitute. On the cross, he took our place, bearing the judgment for sin that we deserved, that we might have his entire uh, righteousness being forgiven by our Holy Father God. In the words of author John Stott, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. He took our place. The good shepherd laid down his life for the sheep. In his fifth I am statement, Jesus was speaking to Martha and Mary. The two of them and their brother Lazarus were some of his closest friends on earth. Their brother Lazarus had fallen sick and died and been placed in a tomb. Jesus would raise him from the dead. But before that, as he spoke with Martha and Mary, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? The resurrection of Jesus Christ is not simply important, but absolutely essential to the Christian faith. In fact, without it, the Christian faith, the words of the Apostle Paul, is futile, useless. It all falls apart because it was predicted by the prophets and in the very words of Christ. The resurrection is essential because in the words of the Apostle Paul, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead. It's also critical because if the resurrection is true, it shows that Jesus' words are true and his promises reliable. And I say that because Jesus predicted his resurrection very, very clearly. The Gospel of Mark chapter 9, Jesus had said to his disciples, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and when he is killed after three days he will rise. As author Tim Keller says, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said, the issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. Not only does a resurrection mean his words are true and his promise is reliable, but it means he's alive today. To fulfill these roles as the great I am in the lives of every one of his followers. To do these things that he said he would do in our lives. Because he lives today. The six I am statement is found in John chapter 14. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas, who we know is Downing Thomas, said, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
clearly Jesus is speaking about his life after death. He says, I'm going away. I'm going to die, but I'll bring you to myself after having prepared a place for you. He's going to live. I have found that these words in these six verses are for people who have suffered a significant loss. Some of the most comforting in the whole Bible. They're words that people often want to use at a funeral service. Often found, though, that they're, they're also comforting to people who are suffering in a way that really sees no end in this life. I was asked to go visit someone a few years ago who was dying with ALS, um, sometimes called Lou Gehrig's disease. And um, this was a 31-year-old man, graduate of Wake Forest, a lawyer, uh, with a, a beautiful wife and, and young child. He was confined to a motorized wheelchair. He had no use of his legs or feet or arms or hands. In fact, he felt like his body was a prison, and he was trapped in it. Yet he had faith, strong faith, in Jesus Christ, faith in his resurrection, Faith in life beyond the grave. And as we were talking, he knew the Bible. He knew the Bible pretty well. He, he reflected on the story of Paul and Silas in the book of Acts where they were imprisoned. And uh, Paul and his friend Silas were placed in a Roman prison with chains around them and their feet in stocks. And at midnight, the Bible says they began singing hymns of praise to God. And so this 31-year-old man, said to me, Paul and Silas could praise God in prison. I can too. He tried to live his life. It's a life of praise to God the few years he had left. Because he knew, because of his faith in Jesus, because of the resurrection, what lay ahead for him. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And he finally says... I am the true vine. Jesus said, I'm the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now Jesus is talking about what he will do in his followers as they live on this earth. Though he has gone away, yet still lives, he would be at work in and through his followers. And he says, by this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the next picture on the screen indicates, life flows from the vine into the branches in order that the branches may produce fruit. Because Jesus is alive, he today provides life-giving power to his followers through the Holy Spirit so that we can bear spiritual fruit, fruit in our own lives, fruit in the lives of the people that we influence, affect, reach. And this high calling for every follower of Jesus to bear fruit, not in our own strength or dependent upon our own human abilities, but the life of God that flows through us through the vine into the branches, this calling is for every single follower of Jesus Christ. But I find that sometimes Christians who know they're Christians, who know 
they've embraced the saving work of Jesus, received him as their Savior and Lord. Sometimes they have assurance of salvation, but no assurance that God is going to use them in a significant way. No expectation that his power will really be at work in them and through them. And often this is because while they feel like they may be a, a branch, they feel like a broken branch. Feel like their lives have been broken. Maybe because of something they've done in the past. Some sin that though they've accepted the forgiveness of Jesus Christ still hangs over them in this cloud of condemnation. Something that was done to them. Some wrong path they went down for some season of life. Something they've experienced. And yet we need to grasp this. The Bible is very clear that when Jesus saves us, he restores us. Most of us have heard the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores. He restores my soul. The picture you see on the screen is an example of a type of pottery. It's a Japanese art form that goes back centuries. And if I can pronounce it right, it's called kintsukuroi. And it means to repair with gold. It's the art of repairing broken pottery with gold or silver lacquer so that the piece is actually more prized, more valued, more beautiful for having been broken and then restored. Jesus, the great I am, is the master potter. And this is what he does with broken lives. He restores them. And he works in them. And he works through them. Furthermore, he fills them. He fills us with the Holy Spirit. As he promised in Acts chapter 1, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon me and you'll be my witnesses. The power of the Holy Spirit is for every follower of Jesus. Power for bearing fruit and affecting the world for the sake of Jesus is not based on our ability, humanly speaking, but our availability to the Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus, when speaking of his role as the true vine, says, apart from me, you can do nothing. In fact, rather than trying to bear fruit in our mere human ability, what he calls us to do is to acknowledge our inability to do anything apart from him and simply make ourselves available to the fullness of the power and the strength and the grace of the Holy Spirit. It's not your ability, it's your availability. When he saves us, he restores us, he fills us with his Holy Spirit, and then he sends us into the world. As he said to his followers, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. Jesus, the great I am, restores, fills, and then he sends. He sends us into this world. He did that with the Apostle Paul. Paul was actually responsible for the putting to death of a number of early Christians. How, how might something like that 
rest is a cloud of condemnation over someone's soul. Yet when God restored him, when God filled him with the Spirit, God sent him to the world. He wrote almost half of our New Testament. If you've been around our church for a little while, you may have seen the vision frame on the screen. It's also in the middle panel of your, your bulletin, if you'd like to take it with you and look at it. We've been in the process of um, clarifying what we believe God's called us to do and be as a church, clarifying our mission as followers of Jesus who are sent into this world with the love of Jesus and truth of Jesus, the, the mission of Jesus and the message of Jesus to show the gospel, to share the gospel. We've been clarifying our discipleship pathway, how folks who come into our church can grow spiritually to fulfill this mission, and then clarifying our values here. Next week, we're going to continue that by focusing on how, specifically how we can grow in the expression of these particular values in each of our lives. But for the moment, I'd like to draw us to three questions by way of personal application. Number one, ask yourself these. Have I received the saving work of the Good Shepherd? Remember, it's not the religious practice that brings one into the sheepfold. It's the person of Jesus. It's embracing what he did on the cross, acknowledging our sin, repenting, turning from it, and turning to him, receiving what he did. The gospel is Jesus as our substitute. Jesus on the cross in our place. Jesus resurrected to give us eternal life. Secondly, do I need to seek his restoring and empowering work in my life? I need to ask him to, to fill me afresh with the Holy Spirit. I have a little note written over uh, my desk that simply says, seek to be filled with the Holy Spirit today. Daily, we should seek the fullness of the presence and power of the Spirit of God to work in us and through us if we're to bear spiritual fruit. And then finally, what steps can I take to move forward in a life of fruit bearing for His glory? If you don't have a church home and you're here as a guest today, we'd invite you to come back and learn more about that through our discipleship pathway. But for the moment, I'd like to pray. And in praying, give an invitation for anyone here who's not yet embraced the saving work of Jesus on the cross for your own salvation. So would you join me now as we pray? Father, thank you for your presence among us. Thank you that Jesus, the Son of God, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, would leave heaven to live on this earth to reveal to us who God is and then to take our place as the good shepherd by laying down his life for us. If you're here this morning and you have never embraced Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, if you recognize your need for his forgiveness and recognize that he did all necessary to provide that forgiveness on the cross and you are ready to become his follower, I would invite you to join me in prayer, simply repeating these words. Dear God, I do believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay for my sins and that you raised him from the dead 
to be my Savior and Lord. Lord, I know I'm a sinner, and I need your forgiveness. I turn from my sin, and I turn to you. Jesus, I receive you into my life as Savior and Lord. Help me to live for you from this day forward. Now, Father, I pray for those here who are in need of your restoring power, that you would bring your power to heal, to restore, to remove the condemnation, and to bring your joy. Lord, as I pray for your restoring work in individuals, I want to pray for your restoring work in marriages here that feel that they are at the breaking point. Jesus, you are the great shepherd of the sheep and the shepherd and bishop of our souls. Would you bring your healing into those marriages that seem broken? And would you make something new and beautiful of them? Thank you, Lord, for your resurrection. And that because you live, we can face everything in this life with hope and trust in our living Savior. And we pray in His name. Amen.